A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good movement and welcome to Redefining Yoga, a lit yoga podcast, which is designed to investigate all aspects of the modern evolution of yoga from my background as a physical therapist and lover of movement. My mission is to help everyone find freedom through safer and smarter movement patterns so together we can be uplifted, benefiting all beings. Today is Friday with Friends, and I have Janelle McCauley. Janelle is a U.S. Air Force veteran and has managed human performance under high-stress situations for over two decades. As a military leader and combat pilot, she experienced the same stress, frustration, and fears that leaders and teams in corporate America face daily in their personal and professional lives. She went on to earn her PhD with work in the field of strategic health and human performance. And we talk about her work and how she brought mindfulness into the military. Enjoy our discussion. And welcome Janelle. So happy to have you on here today. I'm really excited to be here with you today as well, Laura. Thank you so much for having me. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for your service for our country and also now for lots of civilians. So can you take us through the path of how you decided to go into the military? Was that something in your family or did you have a calling for that? Yeah, it was kind of both. So I grew up in a family of servants. My grandfathers were Marines, as well as my uncle. He actually flew Marine One for President Reagan back in the 80s. So uh, he used to take me to air shows, and I kind of got exposure. You know, we'd go meet him when President Reagan would fly into Southern California. And um, so we got to see him in his helicopter and everything. And so I had always kind of been around the military. Uh, additionally, my dad was a police officer, and my mom was a nurse. So I think I just had like public service and, you know, doing something with my community and my blood. And, you know, to be honest, the real way I got into the direction of going to the Air Force Academy was um, when I was a little girl, I mean, and I'm talking like seven, eight years old, my dad would tell anyone that would listen that I was going to grow up to be a combat pilot or a submarine warfare commander. And it was like the 1980s, those jobs weren't even open to women. And so it just really instilled in me this idea that I could do or be anything I wanted. And, you know, I do remember seeing like strangers' eyes like light up and think, what? A little girl who was, of course, like I was a baton twirler and a dancer, like all in a gymnast, you know, all the things that at that time you wouldn't normally say, oh, she's going to grow up and be in the military. 
And so I think it just created this idea that I didn't understand that society had put barriers around what I could do or be in my future. And being around aviation, I had always kind of thought, gosh, that could be a really interesting way to live my life. And my uncle had always told me really great stories about, you know, traveling and seeing the world. And so I ended up at at the Air Force Academy. And then I actually went back and forth about what to do in the military, whether that was to be a pilot, or I actually had kind of a calling to be either a physical therapist or a doctor. Yeah. Major. But, you know, I kind of, as I was graduating from the academy, you have to make choices. And they said, well, if you go to physical therapy school or you go to medical school, you're not going to get to pilot training. But if you go to pilot training, you may be able to be a doctor someday in the future. And so um, little did I know it was going to be a PhD type doctor, but um, I ended up kind of meeting all those milestones and dreams that I had. Yeah, I loved your TED Talk hearing about your dad. I'm I was very close with my father, and he also instilled that sense of confidence uh, that I could do whatever I wanted. And I feel that's so powerful. How much of that do you bring into your work now? For for those who didn't have those messages as as younger people, and I you just see that the effects of that not having that early just it's like being hugged all the time and being told you can be whatever you want. And and it's just a confident cloak that we were so lucky to have gotten early. Um, in your in the work that you do now as a PhD, I, I know we'll talk about mindfulness, but how much do you see that that lack of confidence is is present in the problems that people have? Absolutely. I think there's a huge problem with our Inability in today's world, especially with the demands that are around us, the pressure of the environment we live in, I kind of like to describe our world today as this competitive stress environment where everyone is, and this is just really indicative of the world I grew up in. It was like, you're always trying to one-up each other. And they see it even today with my kids. It's like, how overscheduled can your kids possibly be for for academics? And it's, we don't realize if you really look at like the science of performance and, you know, psychology, how people get to be their best selves. It's not by overscheduling, right? It's by slowing down to speed up. That's kind of a, a mantra I like to use with my clients is that you have to understand the value in slowing down and then how that will bring out an acceleration of your personal and professional success. And the, the side benefit is that you don't lose yourself in the process, right? You don't have to sacrifice your health and relationships in the path toward you know, uh, your vision of success. And so I think we that that culture really impedes our ability to be confident. And so that's one of the skill sets that I do work with clients on and, and train um, specifically the mental skill of confidence. And what my dad started with me on that journey was the idea of really kind of building a, a confidence mantra is what I would call it. And I use it with my family and myself now. And our mantra is, I can do difficult things. And it's based on the fact that we have done difficult things in the past. And you know we may be facing something that's completely different and difficult in a new way. But we know that we can rise to the challenge, right? We can adjust when things get tough. So I use it with my kids when with my daughter, she's 13 and she's doing math right? Like kind of instilling that idea of, yeah, you're going to struggle, but the struggle leads 
to our growth and our learning. And my son, right, he's eight. He mountain bike a lot. He's still new um, in the family and doing that. And he gets up the mountains. He may not be able to do it without stopping, but he knows he can get up the mountain. And so when he faces a new challenge, a new steep hill, as soon as that, that those negative thoughts come in, because they come in for all of us, right? We start thinking, I can't do this. This moment is too big for me. This is too stressful. I don't have, right? Because the, the calculation in our mind is that we don't have the resources to meet the demands of the moment, which normally we tell ourselves we can't do it in those moments. And so that's why we really need to train ourselves to change that narrative, especially when the pressure is high. And so that's where we practice and right, we we train um, this confidence skill by using that mantra. And that's something that you know my dad built in me. Like I was, you know, the the teenager and even in the early part of my career, if someone said I couldn't do something, I found a new way to get to yes. I wouldn't settle for someone telling me that you can't. And I mean, for one example was I, I broke my femur actually when I was a femur or a, a freshman at the Air Force Academy. And that would have been like death to you know, your, your cadet career, uh, your experience at the Academy, as well as, you know, they told me, they put all this metal in my leg to fix it and said, you're probably not going to fly airplanes now. And instead of letting them say, well, you're not going to be able to run, you're not going to be able to do this, you're not going to be able to do that. I said, well, what can I do and how do I get to be able to do those things? And I decided right then and there, no one else gets to write that narrative for me, right? Like I get to create it. And so my dad really did instill a lot of those things in me. I, I will say that the one thing that I work on and I teach now that I think my younger self was not complete is the idea that I needed self-care. The idea that I needed to to kind of slow down because I was that person that was in the hustle and was very successful. And it's almost like your worst enemy because when you're successful, it it makes you feel like, okay, so I'm doing something right. Right? Like this you get well, you get rewarded for your whether it's anxiety or type A behavior, whatever it is. You're getting rewarded for it. So it, it's self-fulfilling, but that isn't necessarily always good. Exactly. Exactly. Because you're, and I just remember being in this moment in my career where I literally had everything I wanted. I was successful um, as an officer, as a pilot. I was a mom. I had a great marriage, military spouse, and was also active duty. Like, you know, everything I'd ever wanted in life, doing the job I want to do that I love. And I just looked around and I felt so miserable. And I was like, why am I not enjoying those moments of success? And it was always because I was worried about what was coming next, right? I was like, okay, it's still not enough, right? It was always the narrative in my head. Like, even though you've accomplished things, don't enjoy it because there's something else you got to start stressing about or worrying about or accomplishing. And so that was where I really kind of called in, you know, there was actually at a burnout point in my career. And like, as I reflected back, I thought, gosh, my dad instilled so many great things. But it was just an incomplete strategy because I didn't truly understand what I now call getting command of your mindset, right? Like I didn't, in those moments, I think back to all the time I wasted where my mind commanded me instead of me commanding my mind and really setting that vision and building a path where there was not only success, but there was a sustainable way that I could also find that success and find joy. I love that. And I think... What you're really speaking to is the fact that we're we're taught, whether it's by our parents or society, to do, to do, 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 do. But we're really not taught a lot. We're value. It's not valued to be. 
And that being is that that reflection, those pauses, that the just being in this moment and not thinking about the checklist or about the goals that you have to accomplish. Those are valuable, but you the balance between being and doing is so important. So how did you formalize this, you know, the background that you had, the confidence that you had, the skill set that you had with the recognition that you needed more of this balance? How did you formalize that and turn it into a training in the military and then go on to a higher education? Yeah, so it all really was born out of self necessity. Um, in a which is the best place, which is the best place to create stuff <laughs> when you're benefiting and you're like, hey, if I benefit from this, I'm pretty sure other mothers, other professionals, other people in this world are also struggling with the same stuff. Yeah, yeah. I needed to solve a problem. Right. And, and I realized shortly as a leader in the military, as I looked around the people I led, as I looked at the, my peers, as I looked at, you know, my, my girlfriends that were in the same phase of life, I realized everybody really struggles with this problem. Right. Like I felt alone at one point, but as I really started reflecting on it and then researching it, especially, I realized we all struggle with intense pressure and stress in our lives and finding a way not to lose ourselves. And so it wasn't just me, right? Like I I knew that there were other people. And so if I could solve this problem for myself, then I could help share it with others. And so that's really what happened. I kind of hit a burnout point and right at that same, like hit the brick wall. Like I, I was physically, emotionally, psychologically, right? Like exhausted. And the Air Force sent me back to school. And as I was sitting there trying to decide what I wanted to study and what I wanted to look into, in the course of what eventually would be my PhD, I really looked at how can we do life better, right? Like how can we excel in stressful environments and then bounce back or actually what I would call bounce forward from them. And I thought back to this idea that these ancient warriors, right? Like where we lost, we as modern warriors today, we've lost our connection with that ancient warrior. The one that knew that a disciplined mind was required to make split-second decisions in high and intense environments. And then also that same contemplative disciplined mind was required to be able to like reintegrate with your tribe, right? And all the things that we were suffering from with the military, like deploying and having issues coming back, being um, sympathetically activated and then addicted to that sympathetic activation and high-stress life, which many veterans suffer from um, because we're never taught how to relax. We're never taught the value in slowing down, right? We feel like if we slow down, we're missing something or we're doing something wrong. At least that's you know how I led, led my life. And I do think it is what the military creates, not at fault. Like, I, I'm, And I'm not trying to point out a fault of the military because our job is to create warfighters, right? We're, we're required to create people who can operate under high stress. The problem is, is that we don't also correspondingly teach them how to exercise the parasympathetic. Right, understanding the value in that space. And, and so what I realized in my research was the way we were creating warfighters was missing, you know, a, a whole training piece in the parasympathetic. I also realized that you can train three things as human beings, your body, your craft, and your mind. And the military does a great job with body and craft. We don't do a single thing with training our minds. 
And that's what that ancient warrior knew, right? Like that is where meditation was born from. It was exercising your minds. And so when I really started do looking into the research, I started integrating all of the practices I was learning into my own life and seeing such a dramatic shift that when I took command of a unit after finishing my PhD, it felt like I had to share it, right? Like I had to model, I had to do leadership differently. And I had no idea what, what that, that would lead to a hugely successful kind of pilot program um, and then lead to more work with in this space in the military into a whole second career. Like I had no idea that that was what was in front of me, but it just is a testament to how powerful the skill sets are and how when you role model the behavior, especially as a leader, how it can impact uh, individuals as well as the organization. Yes. And there's so many things that I, I loved that you just said. And one is pointing out that you saw a gap a hole, a void. And this is what where a lot of entrepreneurship comes from is like what was missing that could take not only you personally, but the, the, the whole system up a level and operate with all three things, you know, the craft, the body and the mind. But what I also really um, am curious about is from that place of really feeling burnt out and stressed, what was the personal, like, what were, can you just talk about three specific things that really changed for you? Yeah, I think the the first one, and some of your listeners might relate to this, especially if they're, you know, working parents. I was in a place in my life where I just felt like, well, I'm in my 30s, I have a full-time job and I'm a mom. Of course I'm exhausted. Like this is just, this phase of life, right? Like I'm supposed to be tired all the time. I'm supposed to be lacking in energy. I'm supposed to be like kind of in a fog and just not performing at my best. And what I realized is that I was excusing my behavior one and in my, you know, like through that narrative. And then also I, I kind of realized I fly airplanes for a living and I need people. I can't afford to be not focused and fatigued and tired. Like if someone's getting on board my plane, they're expecting me to be at the top of my game, right? When I'm going out there to do this important job. And so then not, and then, and then it like affected me in a way where I was like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm operating in this way. Like I'm suboptimal. And, and I'm, and it's almost like we just accept it as a culture because it's that phase of life. And, you know, that combined with this, idea that like who else is suffering from this and needs a solution was one of the you know reasons I, I went down that path. And what I found personally, um, once I kind of realized I had to fix that. So I think the three significant things that that changed in my life were how I slept. Like I, I changed that, that fixed Huge. Yeah. But the military, you this is where another problem that the military faces that I that I think we're finally getting on track to fix. But we use sleep deprivation as a stress inoculator, right? We want to create more stress than your basic training experience to help you understand how to operate in those environments where there's a lot of stress. So we're going to deprive you of sleep. But what we end up doing is creating a whole host of sleep disorders in our military members. In fact, I think the most recent research says that 88% of separating and retiring military members have a sleep disorder. Wow. And so, yeah, like we're creating that. 
And so I never understood the value. And even in fact, many of my peers would wear it like this, like badge of honor, like, Oh, I only sleep three hours a night. Like, like that was something to be proud of. And what we're realizing in the research is that the human body needs 78 hours of sleep. So if you're not getting that seven to eight hours, you're actually bragging yourself out optimal, right? You're saying, I only need three, four hours of sleep. So I'm at a suboptimal state here today on your airplane, right? Yeah. Um, so like the sleep, my sleep patterns, once I fixed that, like that really changed um, a lot about how I felt on a day-to-day basis. And then also, um, I am really big into nutrition. I have a got a certification in whole food plant-based nutrition. Um, Me too. Yay. Yeah. I just realized like there was something with nutrition and, you know, when you really look into the research, 80% of the way you feel on a day-to-day basis tied to what you're eating and how different foods affect your body. And I found out that like there are certain foods that just don't work for me very well. And when I avoid them, I feel so much better. My body starts to work more optimally. And so that was a big transformation for me as well. And then I also shifted the way I thought about exercise. And so these are all the self-care practices, right? That kind of um, uh, changed for me. And a lot of that was with yoga and then mental exercise. And I, the first time I took a yoga class, and you might appreciate this, I was a young lieutenant in pilot training. and I was you know, stressed all the time. And I'm like, oh, I should try this thing, yoga. So I went to a class and I just remember the whole time I'm in the class, I'm thinking, this is so slow. I'm not getting a workout. Like, what am I doing here? And then it was even worse when they made us lie down for Shavasana, right? And I just remember thinking, oh my God, is it over yet? Is it over yet? Is it over yet? It's going to be over. Like, it's such a waste of time. So I never went back, right? I did that one yoga class and I was like, that was an awful experience. I'm never going back until, you know, 12 years later when I absolutely needed it in my life. <laughs> <laughs> And it became my productive space, right? No judgment. Nobody needed anything from me. And that like hours, I just got to be me and have my mat. And it was like magical. So yeah, so that, and then that was kind of what started my journey with mental exercise. But I really didn't dive into mindfulness or this idea of what I call mental push-ups until I did my PhD. And I really dove into the research. And that's where I had this, aha, we have a huge gap, right? Like we don't even talk talk about mental exercise in the military. Like we, and I think part of the problem is if I were to tell the military, right, physical exercise is really good for us. Let's, I have this gym equipment that's going to be the latest technology, right? It's innovative. It's different. And it costs this much money and you put it in this gym and people work out for an hour a day on it. They'd be like, sleep. We totally understand how much is the cost. Here's a check, right? But if I'm telling them, Hey, like this is all tied to our breath, which is free and everybody is already equipped with it. We just have to teach them how to use their breath to exercise their mind. They're like, wait, what? We don't care. <laughs> how do we build an acquisition program around that? Like how much does it cost exactly? Like it's just not something that they can wrap their minds around in this concrete way. And so I think we're just at the process that evolution around mental exercise. We'll get there. Yeah. <laughs> Especially if I keep doing my work, I'm confident we will get there. Oh, I think so. And I think that, you know, some of it is like speaking in the language or speaking the right, like, I think you say meditate, you just, um, you're going to take out like 75% of people right there. But if we talk about better regulating our nervous system, which is of course in the military, I mean, this is, you know, you guys are in high stress position, making um, decisions sometimes 
in seconds and that kind of readiness. But the problem is you can't stay in the sympathetic readiness all the time, or there is that burnout and that stress. And, and like you were mentioning, which I hadn't, I mean, I thought about, but it makes so much sense is when people come out of the military and they've been so accustomed to it, it's addictive to, to have that kind of anxious stress, like some action is going to happen, maybe some, and then all of a sudden your life is like picking up the kids, doing this. And it's like, uh, how do you regulate that? So I think that is um, got to be so powerful. How have people responded if you've ever spoken to it from like that perspective? Yeah, absolutely. I do focus on using that type of messaging and language to get especially leaders to understand, you know, many of our young people today tend, especially in the military and law enforcement, right? These high stress occupations, when they face adversity and challenge, they tend toward those maladaptive coping mechanisms that really mimic where their body is most comfortable. And so that could be riding motorcycles very fast. It could be high-risk activities. It could be abusing different substances, right? Drugs and alcohol, um, being abusive toward, you know, family members, right? Emotionally and um, even physically abusive because they don't know how to not find that anxious, right? High-stress, sympathetically um, activated nervous system space. And so they go out to try to create it for themselves. And so, um, you know, I definitely help service members identify that because I think awareness is, is the first step, right? To even realize that when I am uncomfortable or I'm facing challenge, I, I tend toward those behaviors. And then the second step is finding like the replacements. And part of that replacement comes with understanding and exercising that parasympathetic with, you know, meditation, mindfulness being one of them. But I really don't use mindfulness and meditation. I really describe it more as mental push-ups. I love that. Um, Right, like if people understand physical push-ups, then that you can't just do one and then. Mm-hmm. So when I say you have to do multiple metal, mental push-ups and you have to do them consistently and regularly in order to get the benefit, you know, I, I think that translates. And one really unique story I also share is the parallel between physical exercise and, and mental exercise, because you know back in the '60s, if you were to tell someone, "Hey, I'm going to go for for a jog." or a run, they would have said, why is someone chasing you? (laughs) Why why would you run? That just seems silly. In fact, there was a prevailing thought back then that you only had so many heartbeats, right? And if if you used up all your heartbeats, like you were going to die sooner. So people were like afraid of like doing that kind of physical exercise. They're like, oh, I'm going to use up all my heartbeats. And the Air Force was facing a challenge at the time where right after like World War II and like, you know, we started sitting behind desks more and like in these office spaces and not really doing that hard work labor, right? Like that, that most of us used to do. And the Air Force was having trouble getting their astronauts to be physically fit enough to go into space and their fighter pilots, right? We had new jet aircraft that now you can pull G-forces and they weren't physically fit enough to do those jobs. So they turned to a flight surgeon by the name of Dr. Ken Cooper. And if you Google him, he is the, the founder of Cooper Aerobics. I was going to say, I remember him from teaching high-impact aerobics in the 80s. <laughs> yes, like he founded aerobics in the Air Force. Like it was the answer to the Air Force's operational problem of physical activity with their high-performing profession. And so 
he designed like this idea of like jogging and running and PT testing, which is what we still do in the Air Force. We have to, you know, run at first at a certain time. And so now, right, there's hundreds of thousands of published articles in the physical exercise space to tell us that physical exercise is good for us. But it started off as like this kind of weird thing that there was an operational necessity for the Air Force. And then now everybody runs, right? So I think we're just at the front edge of this next evolution where people are realizing we have digital devices that are constant distractors from our ability to stay focused and to have our attention system, right, stable. And, um, you know, we don't have as much psychological flexibility to adjust to changes and and challenges that we're faced with. Um, We're 24-7 society where there's no work-rest cycles anymore. So we're kind of like mentally, right? Like that our focus, our distraction, our brains are not completely focused in, in the here and the now. And so we need an antidote to that. And I do truly believe the research builds a strong case for mindfulness and mental push-ups to be a solution for what we're facing today. And I think, you know, the, the, the military is a prime example of we can't afford to be distracted, right? Like we can't afford right. to be thinking about who's liking our Facebook page when we're up at 25,000 feet air refueling or, you know, thinking about like who texted us before we got into the plane or what inadequacies we're feeling based on our engagements on email or social media. So we need an answer to that. We need a way to really keep our minds in the present moment, especially when we're doing high risk activities um, where people's lives are on the line. So that's, I love that. You're the, uh, uh, what a great example. Like you have to be fully present, but then it can translate and you could say the same thing. Cause I also heard on your Ted talk about your son when you were taking a bath and you were kind of distracted and it kind of snapped you back. And it's like, as a parent, there's no way we can maintain that kind of focus. Like you have to when you're in the military, but it is, it does beg the question, how much more can we be present with our children in moment to moment? Because there is, you know, there is something at play there of incredible value as well. We're not going to know for many years. Um, we also have to be gentle on ourselves. And this is go- going back to your self-care, how important that is. Because I always, on my whiteboard, when my kids were little, I had on the board, you know, when mom is happy, everybody's happy. <laughs> and it was just this, and I I modeled it more than said it, which was, I'm taking care of myself. Here are the non-negotiables. And you know, they could participate or I'd be like, you're going to need to play with that. I'm, I'm doing yoga. And it was never like this. Oh, well, you know, it's just, okay, mom, you know, just like, here are the boundaries. And I think as moms, we really need to be clear about that because we are going to actually be better parents when we take care of ourselves first. So in that vein, can you tell us some tips that you would recommend for anyone really? obviously military, but also the moms who have to be, the parents, the dads who have to be present in in a a powerful way as well. Yeah. I'd like to use the analogy of the oxygen mask, right? We need to secure oxygen mask before we secure others. And, you know, flying airplanes for, at the time, it's been like 13 years and I never really translated that. I I would brief it, right? Like every time I'd fly in a plane, but I would never think about it in terms of how I was leading my life. Right. Because I always felt like, well, I got to take care of everybody else first, right? The kids, the, the spouse, the people I led, right? Like everybody else had to be, you know, well cared for. And I put myself last. And what I found was that I'm not worth anything then at that point, right? Like I needed to, to better serve and lead others, I really needed to put on my oxygen mask first and, and take care of them. 
myself. And so once I really figured that out, it did transform my relationships. It transformed my way I saw the world around me. Um, and then especially in the mental exercise space, when I really tried to do those things to not just like, yeah, I see mindfulness as a way to get you to the present, right? To kind of clear out a lot of the thought patterns that are not helpful or, or constructive, a way to acknowledge them. Like it's not about pushing as you know, right? Like mindfulness is not like I'm pushing thoughts out because we know when we push or push, you know, emotions down, they come back out, right? As another point. And most of the time, not in an opportune moment. So it's about having a relationship with those negative thought patterns, understanding there might be some benefit in them, but that they don't have to have 100% control over you and your decision-making and your behaviors. And so that's like the first step for me. And then the second step is like layering in then the positive thinking with confidence training and you know teaching yourself how to be calm, how to be focused, how to build trust in yourself to take risks, all those things layering um, on top of it. And so uh, the mental side, right, it has been very important. I would say what I've done with my children is all the things that I've done with myself, I try to, like you were saying, model the behaviors and create comfortable dialogue around them. I don't want my kids to ever think that like meditation or mindfulness is like a word you can't use or stigmatized or, right? It's just normal language in our house. Like my son will even tell me because even though I practice this stuff, I'm a highly anxious person. So I might be driving my car and I might start to get anxious. My eight-year-old will be in the back seat saying, mom, take two deep breaths. Oh, that's the best gift ever. Right? So they're listening, right? They're paying attention. And so when I use the language, when I talk about these things, when I, when we go for a hike and I say, hey, let's just do a mindful minute together right here and just enjoy this moment. And so now they're learning the value in those things, right? That, and it's just becoming a part of what they do. It's not going to be something that is going to be odd or different or, you know, I just want them to understand mental exercise should be a part of their normal routine. So that's the first part, like modeling the behaviors and including them. You know, additionally, um, some of the other things um, we do is, you know, I try to incorporate my exercise time with them. Um, so we do a lot of, you know, we, I live in Utah, so it's easy to do it here, but we do a lot of like hiking, biking, skiing, uh, paddleboarding on the lake, right? Every, a lot of things are definitely active. Um, and we try to make those family activities. I do a lot outside. I'm big into the power of nature. Yes. Uh, right. Like there's something about that. I mean, there's research to the grounding, there's research to the calm effect of just taking it off and taking those deep breaths. So we are a family that does a lot um, of activities outside. And so that's another way to kind of like instill these, these habit patterns in your kids from the beginning. The other thing is, is that I am very open and honest with my kids when I, when I have those moments, right, where I, I lose it a little bit. And, you know, I have used these skill sets with them. And so when they recognize that in me, like I said, my son will say, I'll take a deep breaths, or sometimes like they'll just come up and give me a hug. They know if I'm having a hard day. Like that's a, a way to kind of ground me into what's most important. And then one of the biggest, and I, this alludes to the, the thing you said in the beginning, you said, we, we struggle in today's world about the doing, not the being. And that's a big part of what I teach in my programming, because it's just, when you meet someone new, most of the time you say, hi, how are you? What do you do? Right? Like that's one of the first questions you ask, because we identify with what we do. We put like 
our whole of, of being around what we do. And that is so backwards. We should be something and know who we are and then let the doing kind of flow from that. And so what I teach is the development of a personal philosophy and some of the, the work the programming that I do. And um, I think everybody should have a personal philosophy. It should be a way to like, like understand truly who you are and what's most important to you in, in, in your world, like the guiding principles you live by that are really tied to what you value and kind of your purpose. And so my um, L's, I have four L's is what I talked about in my TED talk, but actually I've added, added a fifth L now. So it's um, labor, laugh, love, learn, lead. What was the first? Uh, labor. Labor, labor uh. laugh, love, learn, and lead. And so that's my personal philosophy. And so when I'm struggling in my day, I just remember those are the things that are so, that are very important to me. I want to labor and work hard. But I don't want to do it at the expense of the laughter and the love and the learning and the leading, right? Like I want to, to do all of those things every day. And so I don't think of them as balance. I think of them as harmony, right? Some days I labor more than I love and learn. And some days I love and learn more than I, you know, do the other ones. But the, the thing is, is every day I do all of them, right? I touch each one of those. And so my kids share my personal philosophy right now because they're too young, I think, to just really have that core philosophy. But I want them thinking about it. And so every day we set intentions for, you know, before they get out of the car, when they go to school or we start school, we set and then at the end of the day, we talk about the L's and my son has a sixth L is called <laughs> So we get to the end of the day and we, we talk about like, did we laugh? Did we love? Did we learn? Did we labor and work hard? You know, did we lead and set an example for others? Did we listen? And so I just think it's a way to help us reflect on our experience and how we interact with the world and what's most important. I just love that. I love that. So everybody think about your own philosophical statement and maybe come up with your own ABCs or L's or whatever it might be. I think that's beautiful. And write them down and look at them. And Janelle, where can people find um, find out more about you? I have a website, JanelleMacaulay.com. Um, so people can reach out to me or, or uh, see uh, some of the programming I offer my work through the website. Additionally, I'm on all the social media platforms. Um, so I, I'd be happy to connect with anyone uh, through any of those uh, media. However, I will say I'm not the biggest on social media because I, I obviously work with the mind a lot. So I try to be very proactive in setting boundaries. It's a, it's a conundrum when you have your own business, right? Because it, it does help you connect with people, but it, it, you also don't want to get sucked down the, the, the rabbit hole. So yes, I understand. Exactly. And, and so I try to set, set healthy boundaries with, with my social media usage. So um, I am available on those platforms. And I tend to, to try to post things in the space of human performance, you know, from mental exercise to sleep and nutrition, uh, tips and um, ideas and skill sets. In, in those spaces and the, the latest research that comes out. And then uh, I also have a, a program that's specific to high stress occupations of so the military, law enforcement, first responders, healthcare workers, government workers um, called Warrior's Edge. And that's uh, at competetocreate.net backslash Warrior's Edge. You can also Google my name with it and you can find it. But it's a uh, eight-hour course that we teach either in a live workshop format or there's an online digital self-paced program. So it's based on the expertise of elite athletes and elite military operators 
And it's built by myself and Pete Carroll, who's the coach of the Seattle Seahawks, as well as Dr. Michael Gervais, who's a high performance sports psychologist. So um, I'd love to engage with any of your uh, listeners that are in the high uh, high stress occupation space with the Warriors Edge program. That's an amazing offering. What a joy it was to meet you and talk with you. You have so much wisdom and experience and Really, these are life skills that we all need to practice. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Laura, for having me. It was so nice chatting with you. It was wonderful. And for all of you listening, thank you. And as always, I'm pulling for you. 